Anyway, we're definitely live, by the way. This this ramble is now in the VOD. That's how everyone um, starts, right? I mean, yeah, it's the classic semi-planned cold open. <laughs> Welcome to Geek Out Weekly, the podcast where we geek out, not so strongly, on a roughly weekly basis. <laughs> uh, I'm your host, Adil, and I'm joined, as always, by Ben. Hey! And special guest, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Dave, do you want to tell us a little... Oh, our, our topic this week is narratives, so we're not talking about a specific piece of pop cultural ephemera this week, rather... A property most of them have, um, except Funko Pops. I guess they're pop culture ephemera, and they don't really have a narrative. You make the except narrative. except when you play with them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, Although no one, no one ever plays with them. Well, yeah, they you, go you, on. They go on a shelf. No, Ben, you take the box and the other box, and you have the box, and them talk through the boxes. Box wars. <laughs> yeah. Save me from this box. <laughs> I mean, you say this, but my dad um, had bought a collection of like miniature car models, uh, mm-hmm. of various uh, like antique cars, uh, and they were like going to be a gift for his son. And then he had two daughters who just didn't seem interested in them. And then I was born, and he moved them from England to Canada, where I was born. And I found them, and my dad told me about them. I'm like, oh, I want to play with the toy cars. My dad's like, you can't. They they have to stay in their boxes because they're collector items. <laughs> so I played with them in boxes because the boxes were like like these, uh, like they had a, a, a window that sort of wrapped from the top down mm-hmm. to the front. Those, and yeah. they were just a bit longer than the cars. And there's the, there were these old, long sort of boaty cars from the 20s through, probably like the 10s through 50s or whatever and so i just drove them around in their boxes until my dad saw that i was tended to bend the flap when i was playing and he's like well now you can't play with the cars in the boxes <laughs> you don't have yeah good box care that's that's a beautiful image i love the idea of you racing two boxes deciding which box might be quicker based on what you can see through that, that uh window the window yeah that's beautiful uh so i mean funko pops same thing. So mm-hmm. I, I sure. created my own narrative with boxes. Exactly. So that might happen. Yeah. That's 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 basically all we're going to be talking about today. Is like how I you mean that's basically the premise of narrative. Minecraft, isn't it? Yeah, make it, your own narrative through boxes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Dave, do you want to tell us? A, uh, well, we know you, but do you want to tell the honest a little bit about yourself and why we might have brought you in? Sure. So um, I'm a lecturer in creative writing at the University of South Wales. That's my kind of main job. And I'm also, as part of that, I write novels. Um, You know, it's kind of without getting too deep down the rabbit hole of academia, my kind of research area is, is writing fiction, especially genre fiction, especially hybrid genres. Um, and that's what I produce in my own work as well as a, as a published author. Um, I have at the moment, uh, three books published under my own name, three books published under a pseudonym, which I write with my partner and that pseudonym's DK Fields. Um, I say three books, actually, uh, only two of them are out at the moment. The third one comes out in August. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So excited. Quick turnaround on the the second and third Ooh, books. Oh, yeah, you get under a contract <laughs> and they they crack it out uh, of you, as it were. It's really, um, yeah. You what tends to happen, um, at least for me, anyway. And um, 
and I would say my partner as well, we spend about four to five years writing the first one and nine-ish months writing the second and nine-ish months writing the, <laughs> the third. So it's quite a different different approach. But uh, um, And then uh, kind of more with my games hat on, um, obviously a big fan of games, been a gamer for as long as I can remember. I'm also uh, one half of the indie studio Pillbug Interactive that have released up to, we'll count an early access game as released. So that's three releases so far, um, one on Switch uh, so far, and uh, the rest are on Steam and itch.io, all available there. So that's, so. I mean, uh, my, my role in Pillbug is, is largely the, um, the narrative side of things, but I do also, because it's a two-man, two-person indie team, uh, we are all doing everything basically all the time. Luckily, I don't mm. have to do the accounts Sean does that, uh, so I've avoided that awful job. But otherwise, uh, we pretty much do do all the narrative design. Well, we do the design together. We do the mechanical design as well as the narrative design. Um, even if one of us might lead on it a little bit more than the other, you know, we're both very much involved in that. So, um, so those are those are like I suppose my my podcast CV rundown. Um, Your bona fides. Yeah, exactly, and why why I might be able to offer a sliver of an opinion on on this massive topic that you've chosen of narrative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just, just before anyone gets too excited, boy, are we just going to chat around whatever sort of pops up in our head, because as you say, Dave, this is um, a big topic, uh, and uh, we're just going to sort of start scratching the surface. Um, we could have come prepared with a, a niche, but then we wouldn't be able to tangent about boxes and, and whatnot so we're going to keep that that flow going um i have uh, which i think is also potentially a very big topic question to start with which is um so obviously narrative is super important and it, it's it's sort of a way humans per, um perceive the world um and we we wrap stories around everything uh but just like so, you you teach creative writing. You you've written some things, and you've done narratives for sort of non-word based narrative. Um, how do you start? Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it it this in, doesn't have to go a long way, but it's just yeah. it's just sort of like I don't know. Let's start at the beginning with beginning. And I can I can I just add to that. How do you start? But also, is there a difference in the way that you approach the different mediums that you're writing for ben, as well? Maybe under be as follow up. That's a good follow up, up before good... before the question's it might, answered. It might come in. It might come in as part of the, the you know, <laughs> okay. explanation. Okay. What are you trying to be efficient? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, let's get ten questions in at once and see if he absolutely <laughs> flounders. Uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. So. I, I thought I was thinking, how do I start each day? How do I start each project? How do I start? How did I start writing? You know, like that starting beginnings, you know, beginning at the beginning, there are many places to begin. It's a very mm. good storyteller answer. But um, I think ultimately it comes down to some pretty wishy-washy ideas of just being curious and just having uh, an open mind to your own imagination and those kinds of things will will kind of transfer whatever medium you're creating in whatever you're writing whatever etc i can pin be a bit more specific about the point where i realized 
uh, for me, it was quite late in in life. I was actually quite late to reading as a kid. Um, I didn't take to it particularly naturally. Um, and uh, the person who taught me to read, the teacher who taught me to read, had to, you know, really take some extra time with me. And she was always surprised that I ended up coming out as someone who um, was interested in this kind of stuff right from a fairly early age in secondary school and things like that. And she, she didn't hold that over me, but she, you know, every she kind of had that kind of like, I remember when you could barely read kind of uh, approach, which was, which was nice, which was an encouragement, but also kind of slightly backhanded, I suppose. But there was a moment when I remember thinking, wow, this is like the power of books. This is the power of fiction, the power of stories. Um, was when I was on a terrible holiday with my family, um, which I was lucky enough to go on. I look back on now and think, well, I was really lucky to go on that holiday. But it was a driving holiday where my grandparents were driving uh, me and my mum around uh, France and a little bit of Germany and a little bit of Switzerland. So, you know, kind of doing a bit of a loop from the UK. And I was so bored, like I was bored beyond belief because long drives, stuck in a car with your family and so on and so forth. So my mum had the uh, prescience to bring along a copy of The Hobbit. Um, And I just read, like, I can't do it now. I can't read in a car. I just throw up almost instantly. But Mm. um, at the time, I just absolutely devoured that book um, in this car um, and just was taken away. And, like, I, I suppose I'd never really quite, until that point, and I must have been, I don't or nine maybe ten um until that point i'd never really lost myself in another world to the point where Mm. i wasn't really aware of what people were saying around me i wasn't aware of the beautiful countryside we were driving through like i think i looked up from the page to admire the swiss alps and then got straight back to it um so that was the moment for me where i was like wow okay you can be utterly transported by something um to a very different place and it, it just happened to coincide, I think, for me with a time where I wasn't really enjoying or particularly happy with where I was, i.e. on a pretty terrible holiday. And I think for me, that's kind of rolled on. So, you know, I notice about myself and I don't know about if this is true of you guys or whatever, or people listening, is that um, my gaming and the kinds of games I engage with changes when I'm in a very happy place in life and when I'm, when I'm in a not so happy place in life. Um, and they become, I suppose, a safe space to it, mm. to, to inhabit in a time of life where I'm not so, so happy. So, um, so that, that's kind of where that's the, the first point I realized I might be interested in stories and it seems to have echoed uh, at various times through other engagement with narrative like games as well as uh, fiction. Hmm. So, so that's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, you're sort of, it's like, um, narr- um, well, narratives as a specific type of narratives as escapism, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting for me is, so when I was growing up, I was, I uh, was a voracious reader. Um, uh, and uh, like, from I would say end of middle school through most of my first undergrads, I um, had five to seven books on the go at any given moment. That's just like w- when I was bored of a book or like needed a break, I just switched books. I didn't switch. 
I didn't st- switch from reading as an activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I've struggled, uh, I, I mean, in other podcasts, um, uh, I've mentioned this, but I'm perfectly honest, like I've struggled, struggled with some mental health stuff. And um, when I was really low and depressed, uh, I couldn't read. And part of that was the depression was compounded by like PhD graduate school guilt about like, I, before I even got depressed, it was like, well, if I'm reading, I should read philosophy, which was my subject. Um, and so I sort of stopped reading for pleasure. But I also noticed that my so my style of escapism tended to be more fantasy and um, and genre stuff, but also less scary, dark, sadness and characters. Um, but when I was low, my escapism medium also shifted to like animes, TV shows, movies, um, rather mm. than um, books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I find interesting because it, it's almost like part of it was I would be reading this like I just like genre stuff, but then when my mood was is lower, it's like passive, more passive, sort of let the world happen at me and I can get lost in it. And then when I'm sort of more up, uh, when I'm more happy, I might shift to I'm okay with reading darker things in the same genres, but actually it's also like. I want to consume this at my own pace. I, I, I read quicker than um, than I watch, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't do the inside voice reading thing. Uh, I learned that very at a younger age. Uh, and so I could just like read and and what I enjoy is like when I'm on it, like just like consuming. And if I'm really enjoying something, I want to be like, give me it, it as fast as you can. And so then a TV series is like as fast as you can is the same as as slow as you can, except maybe taking breaks in between episodes or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I totally get that escapism shift. Yeah, mm. absolutely, yeah. and it's it's interesting as well with your with your story, Dave, that you hey. are reading reading a um a, a book set in quite a lush, vibrant. Uh, world full of mountains and forests whilst you're driving around central Europe full of <laughs> mountains and yeah. forests and it's still the book that holds you that that little bit more um, than the you know the scenery going past that speed mm-hmm. um, and I assume you stopped at some of those and walked around a little bit of the the, the, the countryside and things but even then it's still the stories happening within that um, kind of constructed world which hold you more than just some sticks on the ground over there. Oh, yeah, there's a squirrel. Cool. But I, I think I think you're right. It probably thinking about it now, and I hadn't necessarily really thought about it this way uh, until right, right as you said it, Ben. But that doubling now seems so obvious. Like it's mm. such a, a you know, and no doubt has some aspect to to why that was so powerful for me, rather than you know what. You know, we've all experienced reading great books that we loved, but they don't—they don't necessarily go on to change, uh, you know, our trajectory of life. You know, I mean, I guess yeah. we don't—we don't necessarily know that until hindsight, obviously, too, as well. But yeah, I think that doubling and that particular point in time and life and all that very specific to me, obviously, as an experience. But you know, other people will have some kind of, you know, experience with that with their first really powerful game or book or. Whatever, but that was certainly, I think, the, the 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 reflecting back on my own process and my own journey to where I am now. That's the point where I think it became one of uh, 
fantasy, but also narrative and also escapism. I think if you put those in that that kind of triangle, um, those are the the three points which can, kind of came together to shape me as a triangle. Mm. Uh, <laughs> feel free to jump <laughs> in with that man. follow. What was that follow up question? Now that now that I've found my inner <laughs> shape. Um, I don't remember. I do. Um, yeah. Oh, go for it. it. It was, is is your approach different given mm. the medium? So you, you do write for games and books. And so is it fundamentally different? Or, the, or let's follow up the follow up. Are there some things, even if your approach is there, are there some things you need to sort of track and plan differently given the differences in the medium? Sure. Sure. Yeah, there are some. I'll start with the the, the clear crossovers um, uh, of some, but I'll, I'll wind it back just a touch before I do that, if that's okay. Um, so my yeah. my my training and my kind of uh, education is in prose fiction. Uh, I have dabbled in poetry, um, uh, as many undergraduates do and are forced to do um, on things like my course that I teach now. But when I was an undergraduate, I did that as well. Um, so that's where I, I bring everything from. That's my foundation. That's my root, where I'm most comfortable. Um, and anything beyond that, I fully respect as a different medium and as a different form that I am. Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an apprentice in fiction, but I am an even earlier apprentice in, uh, you know, games writing, in poetry, in writing scripts uh, for either radio, stage or screen. You know, if I was to try and do any of those things, um, some of which I've dabbled with in the past, some of which I haven't. Um, it would uh, I, I go into it knowing that I have some applicable and transferable skills to use those kind of buzzwordy stuff, um, but uh, that I am someone here to learn. Like I'm not even a journeyman, let alone a master of those mm. uh, those forms. And I came to game writing very much like that, very as humble as 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 pie, and just knowing that. Like, yeah, okay, I've played games, like, since I can remember, but um, that's, you know, that, which is great, is useful, don't get me wrong, but um, I didn't come in expecting to know exactly what needed to be done. And, you know, I came in hoping that I could bring something and be and be kind of useful to the projects that Pilberg and Sean um, were looking to, 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 to make. So I kind of want to be useful basically, and and offer some skills that I've developed along the way of, of a different medium. So, but the things that are transferable, so if you're, I don't know, if you're um, a creative writing student at university right now, or if you're just someone who's written as a hobby for a little while, and, you know, maybe you've published some short stories, or you've taken that crack at that first novel, and it's in the drawer, and you, you know, you're never going to get it out, or maybe you've tried to send out to agents, I don't know, I don't know where you are in your writing journey. Uh, it is a, a very long journey, but um, there are some things that you will have developed, some skills you would have thought about, um, some things you would have practiced that are transferable between most mediums of of writing. Because ultimately, like anything, like what we're doing right now, it's involved. It involves communication through language. Mm-hmm. You know, the conventions, the tropes, the ways you use those language varies from from medium to medium, of course. But ultimately, it comes back down to that idea of language. So. Um, kind of building on that, you've got things like um, economy of language. So that's something that I talk to my students an awful lot about, even in prose, even in novel writing, where we think, wow, you know, you've got 80 to 100 to 150,000 words 
um, in your commercial fiction novel, you know, just bunging loads of extra words in there is not the way that that story is going to come together. It's not the way that medium works. Um, but then you you transfer to something like poetry, where you might have say a hundred hundred and fifty words in a poem, or a scene in a you know an FMV or a, a a dialogue conversation in a game, which might last you know somewhere between a hundred to five hundred words. You know, economy of how you use language to get across what you need to get across is transferable between all those mediums, despite the difference in, in scale. Um, so that's one thing. I think if you're a prose writer writing dialogue, if you're naturally interested in writing dialogue and you would say it's one of your prose strengths, then I think game writing and script writing uh, will feel a little bit more natural to you and you'll make that transition a little smoother than if you are a prose writer who really relies heavily on internalization or um, I suppose to an extent description as well. Um, those things are just, they're just managed in a very different way in something mm. like games because it's that visual medium. When I become a games writer, I'm basically only writing dialogue. Um, I'm telling my story fully through dialogue, just like if you were writing a script, I suppose, but at least with the script writing, you get your directions in between chunks of dialogue. So that's one of the big transferable skills between the Do you, just to, uh, just to play on that, do you find yourself, uh, obviously when you're, when you're writing novels, you are putting down a lot of description about the world and the, and the setting and things. Do you find yourself when you're coming into games, doing some of that writing anyway, even if it's just those early kind of concepts, um, and saying, well, actually we want the world to sort of be like this. And rather than, having drawings and mock-ups do you still write all of that down and uh, not necessarily in a in a narrative uh, kind of way for people to read but do you sort of rely still on that skill that you've got of uh, being able to set a scene through uh, prose to then bring to say Sean or to start being able to to mock stuff up as well it's a great question I mean I, I think uh, I did with Cycle 28, but that's in the end that, that kind of uh, planning material is kind of what you're, what you're describing is what mm. I would do mm. as a planning part, the planning process for writing it, um, ended up actually becoming part of the project. You know, it's one of the things that you can kind of unlock those those um, yeah. kind of wadges of prose. Um, you know, they're, they're not really game writing um in that menu screen when you unlock those they are just vignettes i suppose they're not really short stories they're not flash fiction they're kind of scenes or vignettes of part of um that story but in terms of uh i you know for for the latest game making at home i haven't done that actually what i did mm -hmm. do was actually more like um I don't know, like a script Bible or what we would, might call a style sheet for prose, which is list the cast, list them like their, their characteristics very basically, list their relationship to each other, um, list the key locations, and then kind of summarize more like a synopsis of what um, the key relationships are and what, what I want the player to think about and know by various points. Um, rather than just free forms and prose to get myself in the mood, I don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't feel I needed to, um, and I 
interesting i'm not sure it would have helped sean maybe it would have we'll have to, uh, we'll have to ask him that um so you sort of brought up a couple of games there and if the audience isn't familiar with uh your uh the games i thought maybe it'd be useful um for uh, just a quick uh description of both making home and cycle 28 um uh and then um I think it, I'm super interested. So you, like, like you said, cycle 28 has, I'm sort of preempting my own question, but, um, has like lore world building unlock plot stuff. Um, and making home is much more linear as a story. Um, so one, let us know just maybe you're the best person to explain the brace premise and moving parts of those mm-hmm. games. And then uh, I'd be super curious to hear more about like, what do you consider narrative as part of Cycle 28 versus making it home? Because it seems like sort of there's an ebb and flow and sort of a, a push-pull of what could be the narrative of the, of the game and what maybe isn't. And I think that might push, a, push us into an interesting video game narrative conversation. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, yeah, Cycle 28, very, very briefly, is a retro arcade 2D shooter. Think Asteroids, uh, think Luft browsers in terms of its controls at the very least and 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 its kind of design ethos uh, certainly was a big inspiration those two games for cycle 28 um and the the narrative in cycle 28 is um i mean with anything we do like as pillbug we're obviously working under huge constraints of an indie studio so immediately i couldn't go in and go right what i want is a cutscene here and i want voice actors there and, you know, so we're working within constraints. Fair enough. That's that's useful. That's great for a creative because a blank, blank page, a blank slate is like the worst nightmare. The scariest thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So constraints, you know, lead into those and enjoy them, and really, you know, I think they can be beneficial. But it it's um it my my kind of writing philosophy for Peelbug is 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 twofold. One, it's to come in with that humility that I talked about earlier of like I don't know everything. I'm you know I'm not. The biggest swinging dick in the room, as it were, like I am just, uh, you know, here to be as helpful and bring as the skills that I can. Um, and the second thing is uh, to try and reflect the the core gameplay loop as much as I can in the story, and just be aware of that at kind of my top level every time I'm making a creative decision. Is like, how's this going to engage with the gameplay loop? How's How's this going to work for the player, um, uh, and so on, and so on. And it, I think for me, it's the cycle twenty-eight. What I wanted it to be was to be as um, unobtrusive as possible, like because the point of the game, and Sean is always like when we were developing the game, was always like what we want to do, which sounds slightly nefarious, is to get the player always to that point where they're just like, oh, just one more run, just one, you know, mm. because it's it's a game that works over. Um, a six-minute time frame, like it's a six-minute run, um, and you go back in and you go back in and you go back in. So what we can't have is that the story damaging that experience where you're like, okay, just one more run, just one more run. The loading times, thankfully, because if it's a two D two D shooting game, is you know they're non-existent, so you can be like that, right? So you wouldn't want to be clicking through, you know, scrolling, scrolling text all the time just to to. To, to get to the run that you're so keen to get out. That's when people will turn off. They'll go and play a different game. They'll go and do something else, you know, maybe even get some sunshine. I don't know. Um, stay hydrated if you're on, on, listening to this on the podcast. Um, 
but you know, we didn't want it. We, I didn't want the story to be that. Like that wouldn't be great. Mm. So what happens in Cycle Twenty Eight for the story? For those of you who haven't played it yet, um, is a little paragraph of 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 kind of the. It really is internalization. It's not even dialogue, funnily enough, to, from what I was talking about earlier. It's internalization from the the character in the ship that you never see. You never see this character. We didn't have to do a character model. We didn't have a dialogue talking head or anything. It was just, you know, floating bits of text in space that just, you know, goes away very quickly when you start moving and is triggered to that player movement. So if you don't care about this, like if it's not why you're playing the game, you're not that interested, you hit the, the you know, the joypad or whatever you're playing on keyboard, and away you go and the, the the text fades out and that's it like that's as much story as you will get that little paragraph in space it changes periodically which catches people you know so you see the same thing a couple of times you're like oh god this just this is just the intro text and then it changes and people are like oh that's a bit different that was different from so you're drip feeding narrative at hopefully surprising moments and that catches people unaware which is kind of exciting um and then around that, uh, because Pillbug loves hiding things from its players um, and creating mystery that way, uh, there are these vignettes, prose vignettes, unlockable on the main menu screen. And people don't notice that, which is kind of great, but also kind of sad. Um, but uh, they unlock as you do more runs and you just have to hover over the right bit of the menu. So spoilers for people there, but they are there. Um, and that tells the story more in more depth because it's prose, right? Like, so the, it's just saying, like, if you're still in the menu screen, you're happy to chill out with me for a moment and maybe read something about the story. And, like, that's great. Like, you, we've engaged you on a level that you're happy to be engaged in. And you've got the control because then you just say, right, right, this is interesting, but let's start the game. So when it came to making it home where we knew we would want um, more story just as a base level than cycle 28 has because the game functions differently like the core gameplay loop isn't linked to time you know it's um in the sense that um you know the clock is ticking but it's not like the game gets harder the longer the clock goes um it's it's a different gameplay loop um there's a whole there's other scenes for instance you're outside of the game um, when you're actually having these conversations, they again they 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 feature a bit like what we learned from the cycle twenty eight menu screen. You know, we want players to opt into our stories because I think the last thing I like I I hate as a gameplay experience is I'm not engaged by a story and I'm forced to work my way through it. Right? If I'm engaged with the story, I'm delighted and I haven't noticed that I've been forced to engage with it, but we don't want our players to be like, oh, I have to do this. And no one likes clicking through dialogue, right? Like that's that's a really lame experience. So what that ends up with is the every time you see a character in a truck stop in Making It Home, which is a game about going from one side of America to another, but you're a ladybird or bug, depending on which side of the Atlantic you, you I, hail from. Yeah, I guess you are like canonically a ladybug because you're an American ladybird. True. True. Written by a Brit, though, so it gets com- yeah. it does get confusing. <laughs> we might have yeah, to but get. He, but surely you name your 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 character would consider themselves a ladybug. Yes, very true. Very true to the internal. Oh, unless this world. is an alternate fictional America where the Boston Tea Party never happened. Well, you'll just have to play to find out how deep the rabbit hole goes <laughs> uh, on that level. Ladybirds but... and rabbit holes. I'm sorry, I derailed you. <laughs> 
There the is a rabbit Hill fashion. In, in fact, one of the first things that people notice of the story is they're like clicking through this dialogue and reading it, of course, because they've chosen to. Um, and they're like, huh, I'm a ladybird, but my sister is a rabbit. So there's something weird going on there. So like, like they start to kind of think, hmm, that's odd. Uh, and the people who have streamed uh, the game have almost all been like, wait a minute, I'm a ladybird. She's a rabbit. How can she possibly be my sister? So um, so there might be something going on there. Um, but that's that's kind of the de design th ethos, really, of both games. But they are quite different in the sense that, obviously, Making It Home uses that dialogue. It's a la It uses dialogue in this um, kind of branching system um, that's far more involved. It's far more engaging for the player. They've got choices to make. Um, and it, it like that it becomes a, a sub game, I suppose, that complements hopefully the main gameplay loop, um, but which is very different from Cycle Twenty Eight. But they are both opt in. You can play making it home with no idea who the ladybird is, no idea why you're going uh, west coast to east coast, and just enjoy building your vehicle and bouncing around it in the core gameplay loop. Um, or you can actually find out why some of those things are happening. Mm. And it's up to you. And you, you mentioned earlier as well about um, you know, the idea with Cycle 28 and those uh, sort of small scenes are on the menu screen. And some people may never see those. And, and again, with this whole idea of it being kind of like an opt-in story, um, do you ever feel kind of disappointed if you know people don't experience that? Because it, it's a lot of work to go into creating these sort of these worlds and these stories and the relationships that these characters have do you get a sort of a sense that you would um that you're as you said servicing the the, the kind of the gameplay with these other bits or are you sort of now you've done a couple of these starting to think well maybe i would like it to be a bit more integral um, to kind of to the to the run of the game, and uh, I want um, you know people to experience what we're trying to put together as an entire package, uh, rather than it being here's the game, here's some stuff you can experience if you want to. I think it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, the sh the short answer I think for me is is no. Actually, I think I mm. don't I don't um, I don't feel that way. I don't feel that disappointment. Because what what for me is like if people want to read a book by me, like you know the story by me, they can they can go out and buy one of my books, or they can buy someone else's book, or they can just you know consume a slightly different media if they just want that story and story alone mm -hmm. experience. Um, with a different kind of game like um, like a visual novel or a you know what walking narrative or whatever, you, however you want to describe those styles of um, games. Um, they require a colossal amount of artwork. Like it's actually yeah. not, it's not the writing that stops us doing that game, that kind right. of game. It's the sheer amount of uh, visuals you require compared to um, something like, uh, you know, Cycle 28, which is very simple visually, uh, even making it home um, or Intelligent Design, our first game, or more complex visually, but, you know, nothing like the bespoke uh, artwork that those kinds of games actually really turn on. They don't mm. move that much on story. Like story is a big part of the player's engagement with the game. But actually to to make one of those games, I think we'd actually have to have a, a, a serious 
you know, shifts towards uh, the art style. Um, and really that would, we basically need to like have a pers- an artist on our team who yeah. owned a third of the company. <laughs> That's the only way we can do that. Like Sean and I cobble together visuals ourselves like and we outsource a bit of artwork for things like menus and a bit of artwork for things like logos but that's that's the actual um you know we do a lot of that ourselves and we're not good enough to sell a game like a, a visual novel or um that style but, of game so but in terms of like the disappointment i think it's offset by the joy of being part of the game's discoverability feel mm-hmm. right like and i think that's obviously become kind of a a big deal in game design and development in the last it's not that recent, is it? Let's be honest. The last 15, 20 years, maybe, of um, you know the rise of indie games, but also this uh, this idea in AAAs where you know people like discovering stuff for themselves. It doesn't feel like it's just been given to them on a plate, like most story is. So, you know, I feel like if if I can play into that on what I do, then fantastic. You know, uh, I don't feel that disappointment of most people won't see this. I see that joy of the people who do find this will be really excited by it mm. because they found something. Mm. So, uh, Ben, sort of uh, the naturally, I mean, your answer kind of started to address this, but I'm curious. So um, would you guys consider, so obviously certain genres like visual novels, like you said, are just a ton of work, et cetera. But, I mean, you could have different you can have the narrative being the main focus in all kinds of games and i'm thinking things like like a jrpg most people like it because they like that style of gameplay but they really do want the epic long story right like like if you don't have even if it's just the jrpg tropes you know spun in a machine if you didn't have those and you just had the mechanics people would be probably wouldn't like it right so yeah. so um but have you ever have you guys thought of or or would you be excited to try i mean let's not worry about assets etc but to try to do sort of a narrative first type game or are you guys really think or like so basically how far does that point of if you really want a narrative by me you could always just go to a story um but like like there are definitely games that people play for the story not to say the gameplay isn't good or exciting or fun it's just that people want you know, they, they, they want to interact with this story. And as you said, your previous games are sort of opt-in. But have you have you guys thought about doing a sort of, like, core story-focused game, even if the mechanics aren't necessarily um, any different than what you've done, mm-hmm. but just sort of the, the point people are trying to is people are going to want to consume? Yeah, I it, yes, we have. And, I you know, I think funnily enough i think that kind of comes more from sean than it does from me and i i I think it you know going back to something i said earlier it comes from that root of slight humility as a way of approaching uh this and and often you know humility can sometimes be a mask for fear um Mm. and so in that sense you know i always have to think to myself like you know, is this me being humble or is this me being afraid of actually having to carry a whole game based on what I do rather than, you know, what Sean does or what we do together? Um, and also, I suppose, something that I'm kind you know, I'm putting myself out there in terms of my reputation as someone who writes rather than, mm. you know, um, someone who's just writing for a game. If it's if it's a whole, you know, a whole game based on my story, Um 
I certainly wouldn't shy away from the work. It's like an exciting approach to storytelling. You know, games like, I don't know, like recently the game that's most made us think along these lines is Disco Elysium, um, where, yeah, a fantastic game, fantastic narratively driven game, but also narratively text driven. You know, it's not, yeah. it's, you know, we, we talk about story, um, you know, in a game, medium like games, you're, you're often needing to include like the visual cues of narrative, the sound, the audio cues of narrative, so on and so forth. But um, that game tells a lot of its story through text, like more so than most, obviously, even like your JRPGs or um, even things like World of Warcraft, your online um, massive lore-based worlds, right? Uh, you know, they do do a lot of visual storytelling as well as the, the text. But I think Vis Disco Elysium is a good example of where the text does so much, it works so hard and so cleverly to generate that story um, that I think, yeah, we would be very interested in leaning in towards that. Um, whether or not where it would come in the design process, I think is where we we would be, we would have to make some pretty big changes if that story was to come first. Um, you know, Sure, sure. What a really easy example is Sean once did say to me, like, do you want to adapt one of your books for for a game? Um, and, you know, I didn't, I mean, that would be great. Like, uh, you know, every author, not every, lots of authors want their books adapted for, for film and TV. They probably don't think as much about adapting books for games, um, but it's an, you know, potentially exciting area. Um, but I didn't jump at that because... You know, for me, I mean, a lot like a lot of authors feel this way, like your last book or the book before or the book before, you know, you've you've moved on. You're on to the next book. You're thinking about what's the next book. So it feels like a bit like looking backwards, which is a weird experience. Lots of people have to do it. Actors, directors, whatever, um, as well as writers. So uh, that would I would have to kind of reengage with something in my past in order to move forward with with, with something like a game. So that would be a weird experience. And I, I would also, I think I would always want to be led by, well, what, what is the game going to be? Like, what is the core mm. experience going to be? And if you said to me, okay, so you're just going to be clicking through branching dialogue trees, mostly like a game that we played on stream recently. I know Ben, you've played it subsurface circular. I think you played mm -hmm. it more than we did. I think we played like one episode and, and kind of moved on, um, you know, that kind of game. Uh, which does a really good job with that approach to branching narrative, where the narrative is the you know is the key thing, it's the important thing. Um, but I think for me, it just feels like not why I got into writing for games, really, because it's almost too close to writing prose fiction. Weirdly, um, so. It's weird. It's a really good question. It's not like I feel like I'm on the spot, but it is a really interesting question. Like, why have a writer on your team if you're not going to start the design process with with a story? And I, I wonder if it's because, for me, I think, you know, I came to it as trying to bring a little bit of something to a game rather than being the focus of the game. Hmm. I mean, it's also, I think, a different set of skills uh, in that, like, you could tell a really tight story, right, and, and make it, but it would be a bad game 
unless it was you, like that's like some of the worst games are ones which railroad you, right? Like you, where the the narrative sacri- the gameplay is sacrificed to the narrative because what you want is some notion of interactivity and agency, and sometimes interactivity like with um, you know um, we call them news games, uh, which you know is um, narrative exploration walking simulators or northeast southwest because you can go anywhere. Um, we're very clever here. That is, that's uh, really good. Did you coin that or is that someone else? Oh, that's, yeah, we coined no, this yeah, that was us, three yeah. years ago. Yeah. Years ago very now. Good, very good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, oh, now, now I'm just Sorry. basking in the, yeah. in the glow of compliments because, well, it's, it's 2021 and any, anything I can bask in is, uh, what was I saying? Right. Um, sometimes games do this to the detriment of, of, of the game, right? They, and so it seems like, writing a narrative for not only like so with news games you have to write it in a piecemealish fashion such that it's not just like what like you said with cycle 28 where you're drip feeding the narrative throughout runs because that's how the game is designed but like with a news game you you have to write it in the sense of not only are people going to have to stumble upon lore etc or voice cues or whatever but they also will it has to be written in a way that you can't predict the order so much otherwise it becomes a poor version of one of those games mm-hmm. you know like i love trying to break games and some of these games you know you sequence break you you go left one at the game one you go right and then you you find some other piece of uh, some dialogue box comes up that doesn't quite make sense and then you prompt another one later and you're like oh that's why they said that there, right? <laughs> There's a whole lot more of, I think it's just a different approach to writing because it it's like, it's much more like you have to think of it as a collection of lore that together the user will figure things out. And even if it's not a walking simulator or a news game, um, you still kind of have to hope there is that different hat of writing, I think, right? That, that, like, Definitely. Yeah, and 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 I think that's one thing. If you're coming from prose or, or or poetry, and I suppose script as well, yeah, any of those other mediums, uh, you know, you may well have to check that idea of linear control at the door, right? Like, I think that might be something you have to get used to um, and taking a different approach, um, even with branching narratives. Like, that's been really like I write dialogue you know for my pro stuff and it's a fairly linear experience you know you write a question and then you think right what what's the other car you know person gonna answer okay could they answer this could they answer that then you decide and you move on um whereas writing for making it home i was like there's the question i need to come up with three answers that Mm. you know a a plausible as an answer for that question so you don't just get weird non sequiturs but also b are different from each other enough to be interesting choices for the player. And then you're thinking, okay, so I've made those three, but I actually also have to think about the change that they produce because they're not just question, answer from three, question, answer from three. You're actually kind of building down that that branch, right? Or you're following down that branch because we don't build trees um, that Yet. are... Uh, you know, you're following it down to to where's the logical conclusion for the fact that at the top they said yes, I would love a piece of cake. To no, I'm on a diet. You know, you go all the way down and you know to a different psychological endpoint for that conversation. 
than if the person accepted the piece of cake. And then what's been weirdly for me then is thinking, right, I've got these two different points because, you know, you've had two people have a conversation and it's branched off and that's what you want it to be different. So the player feels like we've had a different experience each time, but they still need to come back together because they need to talk about, um, I don't know, uh, tomorrow's headlines. I'm going to use your news example. Tomorrow head, tomorrow's headlines because that's what the whole scene is about. And Cake was just a way to talk about characterization or to get this issue of diet in. But really the game is about what's going to be on the headlines uh, tomorrow. So you kind of branch out and then you come back in. And I feel like I go in quite a, a weird wonky wave motion a lot with that writing, which is so different from writing prose. Mm. Um, do you, do, just to, to, to build on that a little bit, do you think obviously when you're kind of, writing prose you have that character in your head and they have that almost sort of linear path through a scene through a conversation whereas with this when you're choosing different uh, options and different um, different dialogues for them to speak do you kind of almost have um, say like two characters or three characters depending on the amount of answers you have like in your head like uh, this is going to be like the angry answer and I'm going to run through with that and this is they're just in a mood and they're not happy or they they're feeling really good, um, and we can we can run through with that sort of stuff. Or is it a bit more extreme than that? You're kind of, you know, this this person's like completely pissed, and it's someone completely different. It's not just their mood is shifting between these answers. Like, how do you approach trying to differentiate between those kind of uh, dialogue options or sure. choices? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think um, you know. Because of my background, I tend to choose what I think you've described as the former, which is it's just one person. One, I think of that person as a character that mm-hmm. I'm that I'm writing that is similar but very different in the approach uh, to writing prose. Um, but knowing that, re- depending on the stimulus, depending on the question, depending on the interaction, may well change uh, their immediate responses. But you know, I think the danger of the latter approach, which we've all experienced, I'm sure, with games, is that you have, you know, your protagonist, or maybe you're choosing the answers for a secondary character or whatever, but let's say it's your protagonist, and there's an option there that just doesn't sound like them, right? Like, just like this person is a, is a hero who's saving a world, and yet you've given them an option to be a complete arsehole. Mm. And you're like, well, that's not, you know that's not my that's not the character outside this conversation but you've just given me an option to be an arsehole because some people like to be arseholes in games and like and you you know there's i'm sure you've all experienced that where you're like i'm going to do that this time through it's like i'm just <laughs> yeah. going to choose the worst option each time and see what happens and you know fair enough but to me i think gamers have perhaps evolved a little bit beyond that approach to and we you know once you're aware of that trope you know it gets it gets um kind of uh lampooned and people like write you know youtube or produce youtube videos laughing at it and things like that where you're like this is just the arsehole option each time and it's become a thing in games right it's become a trope i suppose so weirdly enough for me for making it home i don't feel like i want to lean into that um, I want you to feel like these are all plausible answers for the character, which is quite linearly controlled in that sense for me then, because I'm the one deciding 
those three options, but it makes it much harder for me to give you three different options. Like mm-hmm. I don't get that easy get out of jail, right? What if she just flipped out in response to that cake question and was like, don't you know I'm on a diet? How dare you? You're, you're the worst best friend ever, you know, and you just go down that extreme road. But but that's not how that moment was leading up to. And that's not how I want you to feel about this character. It's not how you want you to feel about this relationship. So I suppose I do take a more controlling route through that mm-hmm. for, as a writer. But I think it generates hopefully a more cohesive sense of each character because you're not just occasionally flipping them out. So you're saying you would never write a game where every time for every interaction, the third option is always stab the fucker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, like now you've posed that as a question. I think I have to, but like, you know, and that would be a great design constraint to work within. Mr. Stabby. Uh, I mean, if you stab the fucker, sorry, stab the F hashtag CKER coming soon in 2023. It it might make sense if you're writing a character who is in prison or something like that. You know, very much the way you're talking is this is the character and these are the way that they would act, even if it is a slightly different mood between each thing or or a different uh, kind of way of them um, coming back it's never going to be that extreme of taking you out of that character's kind of personality that's what I hope for I mean mm. the test the, the proof will be in the pudding when people lots like more people get their hands on making it home and get through the story we're we're only two thirds of the way through the story and making it home mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know a bit hopefully we'll reach the point where people are willing to give and a- able to give feedback on the narrative for that game and they'll be able to say actually I don't think you managed that. And I don't think this, you know, truck stop in uh, Scranton or whatever um, is is a reflective of the character. I noticed a real shift in this character here. And, you know, because those kinds of things slip through. That's why we have editors yeah. in prose and so on and other things like that. Um, so for me, interestingly here, the players are the editor um, and they're going to be mm-hmm. the ones that flag up whether or not they feel it's as consistent. I mean, so... Ben didn't like that answer. No, he's just like, I'm done. <laughs> just stormed off the set. Uh, so uh, one of the things that sort of struck me when you were talking about um, these notions of uh, competing or, you know, not just having the default choices because people lampoon it. Um, one of the things that it struck me was there's another trap that I think games or pe- gamers are starting to be more vocal about which is of course the non-choice choice um and so one of the most uh i think recent famous ones is cyberpunk 2077 you start from three different backgrounds um and the first prologue bit you are definitely you're introduced to night city based on your background and you have a little bit of plot uh and then it kicks in a montage scene, which is identical for all three, and it starts you in the exact same place, i.e. whatever your position was before, you met a, you met a dude, and then that meant that you did a thing, and like, so you do this, basically, you, you get to the same place, and then you do a mission, and it's, it's all the same, and except for the odd dialogue option that is either closed or open to you, the game is identical, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth saying that, like, once you, like, Video games and gamers have now evolved such that, like, it's one thing if it's, like, choice on the side, like you were saying. And I think, like, 
when it's just building out the world, that's nice and people are going to enjoy it or, like you said, be able to skip through it. But once you make it a narrative-focused game, you can't like you can't get away with these fake choices or like you do the asshole thing and then you know people the next time you meet them people are like hey what's up it's like why was yeah, it there's uh, no consequence to you yeah, yeah. Like, the game needs to have the like dick beater for each person and like now you know I've, I've hit the threshold i was an asshole so sorry i don't get this mission or something like this right like it's yeah it's too it, it makes writing these like that expectation being there now which i think is good also means that like like you're saying now writing this type of game where the writing is core is more difficult the more gameplay there is because we have got maturity with things like Disco Elysium um, that we know you can it's possible to make games where when you do these things they impact the world and if you are going to give me the option to do these things and the point is to try and sort of have this emergent narrative under the constraints of what the designers have done um, it better matter otherwise why are you wasting my time yeah definitely and i think like when we get as we get more sophisticated in the games like sean my the guy i work with is so into systems-based games or how he what he describes as system-based games where you know he's got a torch and he can just basically set various things on fire and they would react as if you know you know and that wasn't what the designers linearly said right now go set this tree on fire but um you know, we need to take that same approach with story. And I think Disco Elysium has done a really good job of, of, of opening up that conversation and saying, like, you know, interesting, I'm not going to show you all the time what the consequences for your, uh, your, your, your conversation choices are. You know, that some of that's going to be hidden from you and it's only going to come up when it reaches a certain threshold. Um, and, you know, and those personality traits that Disco Elysium manage and things like that. You know, I, I think that's really, really good. Um, and, and 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 one thing I would say about that as well is when we were designing Making It Home and thinking about the branching narratives, one of the questions was, do you let the player go back up the branch and choose the options that they didn't choose? And, you know, that's something that Subsurface Circular does. Um, and I actually dislike, I dislike that approach because it feels then to me like that, that initial choice that you offered me doesn't matter because I'm mm. going to come back and I'm going to take the time to click through each one. But if you lock those away, then I feel like every time I choose which piece of dialogue, like it means like I'm not only getting something, but I'm missing out on two other things. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's a relevant that's a one way we may try to make that choice relevant. The others um, open a bit more into that design space. Uh, I'll take a very quick example that, um, uh, you know, it, the first boss in the first act of making it home is your sister, Ellen, and you race her. There is, through conversation, um, means of changing that experience quite drastically. And that means that every time you meet Ellen in the future, in Acts 2 and 3, she and you as the character have changed your relationship. She's based, you know, spoilers, she's basically a lot nicer to you because you understand each other a little bit better because you've had that conversation and you found your way through that dialogue um, in such a way that improves that relationship. But you're right. As a writer, that means I then need to write two two different action in like whole scenes for 
uh, a conversation with Ellen each time based on did you figure this out or did you not? And that's a very simple like binary mm. thing, right? Like so, a even more complex system like you see in make in Dis uh, Disco Elysium, you know, yeah, it's a huge amount of work, and that's why I suppose it, coming back to your earlier question, you know, one assumes that they started with the story as their design process right at the beginning rather than thinking how am i going to fit a story to this core gameplay loop which is what we do mm -hmm. nice um so we're we're coming up to the end of our hour so kind of just to just to round out the conversation uh dave we've we've already mentioned sort of disco elysium but are there any other for you really good examples of of narrative in game either uh, you know kind of what we've been talking about where they're either just it takes you through um, and gives you that choice or even just sort of linear stories that are just written very well? That's a really good question. Um, I think kind of thinking back through my current games that I've been really impressed by in terms of the narrative, like I was quite late to Firewatch. Mm. I think that is a fantastic narrative game. It gives, you know, the illusion to some extent of a great amount of sandbox freedom when really it's actually quite, you know, it's, it's linear on rails to some extent mm. um, in terms of the story, at least. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I, 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 I really loved losing myself in Divinity 2 Original Sin as a, mm. uh, as, as a kind of just bonkersly enormous kind of role-playing uh, RPG experience. Um I, I also happen to love the turn-based combat in that game, so that 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 really worked for me. But just just sometimes I don't want this every time from a game, uh, but sometimes it's just nice to lose yourself in that massive world where you know there's books lining the ground that you can pick up and read if you want to, and mm. uh, you know there's ten factions you got to worry about and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's that's very different to to something like Firewatch. Um, I think we enjoyed a bit of Spiritfarer on the on the mm. stream the other day that's that's really nice but that that relies quite heavily on visual storytelling as, as much yes. as anything like um and that works well because the dialogue's nicely done really nicely done um and lastly my kind of get out answer would be something like gris or far lone sales where all the storytelling all the narrative is done largely through um visuals mm. and i like i as someone who obviously works heavily with with the written words, I don't think that's the only way to tell a story in a game. Like Absolutely. I think those two examples do a wonderful job of telling a story without without heavily relying on that. Awesome. Um Ben, do you have a top top story? Oh a top game? story, geez. Um Hey, this is your question. I just flipped it back. No, no yeah, I know. I, I hadn't even I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I, I would agree with Firewatch. I absolutely love that game. Um, when it came out, I, I, I am quite partial to, um, absolute absurdity. So, you know, Final Fantasy VII will always have a ridiculously good place in my, in my gaming brain because it's just nuts. Uh, as are a lot of Final Fantasy games. Um, it might it just not be came at of, that right time for us, right? Like, I feel it, like that's yeah. a generational thing of like, that's the game where you, a bit like what I was saying with The Hobbit earlier, that's the game mm. that was like, this yeah. is what it could be. Completely, um, yeah. completely. 
I mean, I was going to say Final Fantasy VII as well. I mean, I actually think FF6 might be a mm. better story. And I actually wanted to... Why I wanted to say FF7 sticks to me is because it was also this proto-3D, obviously hilarious how much you thought it was the most amazing graphics ever looking back, right? <laughs> Which is another uh, t- topic that we could easily nostalgia bomb ourselves into, uh, but at the risk of wasting time, I won't. Um, so, but yeah, it was so much more immersive, even though the combat mechanics are basically the same, mm-hmm. except now you have the summons are real pretty, right? And that was also a big part of it, right? You you wanted to cast Knights of the Round even though it took 10 minutes to <laughs> finish because it looked so amazing, right? And I yeah. think that made you... I mean, that's why I think narratives in games are very interesting because the graphics, the interactivity, the game, the mechanics can suck you into a bonker story in a mm-hmm. different way than just the bonker story can, right? So, and I think FF6 and 7 show off I think a tighter story in the one, but it that's not my favorite story. My favorite story is this other crazy thing. Um, and it's because it's like it's my favorite story in a game, right? It's not just yes. my favorite sort of story that happens in a game. It's like my favorite game story. And again, I think you're right. Like it, it's it, it hit that sweet spot for us uh, that generation. I don't think I'm not sure there will be another one for us. And I'm not sure what mm. the Zoomer version of that would be. Awesome. This was really great. Mm. Yeah, uh, I had a whole bunch of other notes that we won't. Well, maybe we'll I might have to do a part two, um, or something. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's been Geek Out Weekly for the week. Um, before I go on to anything, uh, Dave, do you, thanks again for being a guest. This was really great. Um, but um, do you, if people wanted to find all the things that you are involved in, what are those things, and how would they find them? Sure. Um, so you can find anything to do with Pillbug at pillbug.zone. Yes, you heard that right. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at, at pillbugint. Um, you can find me on Twitter at d underscore Towsy. Um, you can also just uh, Google David Towsy. There's only two of us in the world. Um <laughs> Do you want to just spell that out for the listener? Yes, sure, for the podcast process. It's uh, T-O-W-S-E-Y. So, yeah, that's a pretty unusual name there. But, uh, yeah, so you can find me at uh, those places mostly. I don't do Instagram. I'm sorry. I've just never been good at taking photos. So I've just... That side of me, just putting that out there. That's fair. fair. We started and dropped it quite quickly. It's It's a jungle out there. You could always just write things down and then take pictures of what you've written. To be honest, my that, handwriting prob- is terrible. Ah, I think that's right. the you know, like it's such a visual <laughs> thing, isn't it? Like that's the thing. Like I anyway, um, yeah. but no, thank you very much for having me on the show. No, it's, uh, very, it's been really good. Ben, uh, how do people reach you? Uh, I'm at Nova underscore forty seven almost everywhere, uh, and I'm at the Omniarch almost everywhere except here on Twitch where I'm at the underscore Omniarch, but I haven't streamed in donkey's years outside of Out of Live stuff. Speaking of Out of Live stuff, you can reach us at Out of Lives Net on Twitter, Out of Lives Net on the internet, where you'll find this podcast and others like Tanked Up, podcast all about craft beer and video games, and VODs, streams, articles, just go there. Um, it's out a of website. Lives Net work on Twitter, or, I'm sorry, on, on YouTube. Uh, yeah, those things. Um, you can also catch us 
streaming uh, the live recording of Tanked Up, the aforementioned podcast, on Tuesdays at 8pm British time. Tuesdays I do first looks at games uh, at noon, and Ben and I play a game together during his lunch break on Wednesdays. And of course, Radari has his insomnia streams at 10.30. Uh, again, that's twitch.tv slash network if you are not listening to this rather than seeing it live. That's all the pluggy things. Thanks again, Dave. I've been Thanks Adil. I've been Ben. And I've been Dave. Bye. Bye. www.outoflives.net